And I wanted people to feel that and understand what that knock at the door is like. And the military families who are left behind when a loved one is lost to combat. That's Dana Kennedy, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and the publisher of Simon & Schuster. She's describing the transformation of her book, A Journal for Jordan, into a major motion picture directed by Denzel Washington. When Denzel and I started talking about this, I said, the one thing I want you to understand is that there is a real Jordan behind A Journal for Jordan. We're people, and we got to channel that into this film, and that's what we did. You can't ask for anything better than that when you turn your story over to someone and hope they do justice to it. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. I spoke with Kennedy in New York City just after the red carpet premiere. Denzel was there, so were the stars, Shantae Adams and Michael B. Jordan. What's this? It's a journal, so you can write to your son. What do I write? Tell him who you are. It's a story of love. I wanted to be his wife. I wanted to have his child. I just knew it. Of faith. He was the only man I ever dated that I felt comfortable praying with. And of resilience. After First Sergeant Charles Monroe King made the ultimate sacrifice serving in Iraq. And I remember thinking, how am I going to get off this floor? And then I heard Jordan crying. And I had to get up. uh, he, He needed his mother. It's a patriotic film at a moment of deep polarization. Do you think that's an important message to convey right now? I really do. Charles didn't fight for Black people. He didn't fight for Asian people. He fought for all of us, for our Constitution and our ideals. Kennedy also talks about her powerhouse role in publishing. I don't want to be the Black anything. I'm not the Black publisher. I'm the publisher. The decisions she makes about which voices to amplify. We have to hear from people we agree with and people we don't. An echo chamber is one of the most dangerous things that we can tune into. And where our country is going as Jordan becomes a young man. We are literally called the United States. And if we don't live up to that, then we might as well change our name. That's it. It's as simple as that. Dana Kennedy, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You share an incredibly powerful and persuasive story. Thank you. You grew up in a military family near Fort Knox, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Your father was in the military. And you promised yourself you would never fall in love with a military man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me how you fell in love with Sergeant Charles King. So, first Sergeant Charles Monroe King. Um, it's funny, you make plans and God laughs because I met him in the living room of my parents' house in a small town in Kentucky. I walked in and I was like, damn, 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 damn. He is so cute. And he's a soldier. Uh, but he had such an amazing heart and such character that I couldn't help but fall for him. Let's take a look at one of your early encounters with Charles, as is portrayed in the new movie, A Journal for Jordan. He is played by Michael B. Jordan, and you are played by Shantae Adams. Charles, please, I appreciate the manners, but you can't keep walking on the outside of the sidewalk. It's New York. There are too many people. I'm sorry, I just can't help it. Just... (laughs) It's a force of habit. You know what? No, I'm sorry. Thank you. The world needs more gentlemen. What do you think about the portrayal of Charles? I think that starting with Denzel, our director, and with Shantae and Mike and our screenwriter, Virgil Williams, they did me the great honor of keeping me involved every step of the process. And therefore, they got to know us as people, not just characters. And you see that palpably in the portrayals. And I think they nailed it. 
Why was it so important for you to have a working collaboration with your director? Because that's quite unusual. It's very unusual. Denzel and I have been friends for 13 years. He read an article that I wrote in the New York Times that led to the book. I wrote an article in the Times because I thought I'm the only national journalist who's had that experience of opening the front door and there are the soldiers standing there and they don't even have to say a word, you know why they're there. And I wanted people to feel that and understand what that knock at the door is like. And the military families who are left behind when a loved one is lost to combat. So when Denzel and I started talking about this, I said, the one thing I want you to understand is that there is a real Jordan behind a journal for Jordan. And he met my son and we, we started talking and became friends. And over the years, we're waiting for the right moment for this movie to be made. And one point he called me mm, a couple years ago. It was quite emotional. And I said, Denzel, it's because we're no longer characters to you. We're people. And we got to channel that into this film. And that's what we did. You were rising through the ranks of the New York Times. You won a Pulitzer Prize for your reporting on race in America. Mm. And in 2004, Charles received orders for Iraq. You then surprised him by announcing that you wanted to have a baby with him. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you arrive at that decision? It was instant. When he told me he was going to be going to the war, it really was one of those life flash before your eyes moments. And I had he was my Linus blanket. I had always sort of just taken for granted he'd be there and that we had time. And suddenly I was turning 40. I'd never particularly wanted kids or wanted to be married. We had a great life dating and um, traveling and so forth. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my gosh, I could lose this man. And I, in that moment, I'd been fearful of marriage, frankly. I wanted to be his wife. I wanted to have his child. I just knew it. Uh, it was as simple as that. It just became clear to you. Yeah. How did he react? He said, absolutely, which stunned me. I said, Charles, don't you need time to think about this? I'm not asking you for a puppy here. And he's, I said, he got frustrated and said, Dana, you're the one that doesn't sound sure. And I said, but how can you make this decision so quickly? And he said, I made it a long time ago. What inspired you to give Charles a journal to keep when he went to Iraq? I was in a gift shop buying a present for a friend. And I saw this journal on a shelf and I thought, you know, what if something happens to him over there? I'd love for our son to at least see the words, I love you, dad, on a page. And I, I didn't think he was going to fill the entire journal, but he did. He wrote 200 pages, most of it from the war zone while I was pregnant, about the power of prayer and how to choose a wife and about living a, a dignified, honorable life. I couldn't believe it. When I received that journal and read it, I fell in love with him at a deeper level. Um. Charles didn't make it back for the birth of your son, but met your son months later. He took a two-week leave uh, towards the end of his tour. And on October 14th, 2006, just weeks before his deployment in Iraq was to end, he was tragically killed mm -hmm. by an IED. Um, you're incredibly descriptive about your grief. And um, you say it was physical. Yes. So what actually got you through? Oh, that baby, our son. Um, <clears throat> when I got the news, I collapsed onto a hardwood floor screaming. 
And I remember thinking, how am I going to get off this floor? I didn't think I'd have the energy to get up. And then I heard Jordan crying. And I had to get up. I, uh, he, he needed his mother. So that's, that's, that's what did it. Um, the military told you that they believe Charles died instantly. And um, because you were a journalist, <laughs> uh, you deployed your own skills as a journalist to understand more about what happened specifically in those moments after the explosion. Um, and you learned about a process uh, the military undergoes around scrubbing. Mm -hmm. um, what is a scrubbing process? Scrubbing is when the military sort of sanitizes the story uh, of what happened. And it's not done maliciously. The first part of the process is just to make sure there's no sensitive or classified information uh, that they need to remove. The second part is to try to help the families um, with the grief and to not um, do anything to make the grief harder. So maybe removing items that might have blood on them, taking a wedding band that's mangled and, and making it pristine again, those kinds of things. But because I'm a journalist, I also interviewed everybody who was around him, his bosses, his his soldiers. Uh, I interviewed the doctor who was who pronounced him dead in the hospital in Baghdad. Uh, I needed to know uh, what happened to him. And so I tried to break through the scrubbing to the real story and ultimately did. So what'd you learn? I learned that it's still in dispute whether he died instantly or not. I don't think he did. I think the soldiers I interviewed were trying to protect me. There were eyewitnesses. Yes. That said that he didn't die instantly. Yes, yes. I think he was fighting to live. He was trying, you know, to live. And I remember asking one of the soldiers that I was interviewing, and this was unfair, and it was not me being a journalist in that moment. He was saying that Charles had asked about the soldiers who were with him. And I said, I just blurted out, do you think he thought about us? And that was unfair. That was not a reporter's question. And he couldn't have answered that. But I just, I was, I, in that moment, I was wondering, was he scared? Did he wonder where I was? Um, but he also was an incredibly Christian man. And I believe those angel wings carried him, carried him off. Charles is an accomplished artist. Yes. <laughs> and um, you share some of it in the book, including an angel print that hangs over Jordan's bed. Mm -hmm. You said you believe those angel wings are what carried him away. I believe that. I remember when he presented me with a framed copy of the angel. He just quietly handed it to me without saying a word. And I started shaking and I shoved it back at him and I said, I don't want this. This is you. Do not give me a picture of you as an angel. You're coming home. And I put it in a closet and I was so angry. And I took it out after he died and hung it in Jordan's room. And I now know why Charles presented it to me and I'm grateful that we have it. Many Americans have little or no direct experience with the military. Um, what do they need to know about military families and Gold Star families? I think the, the, one of the main reasons I wanted to do this movie is so that Americans could more palpably feel what it's like to have a service member in harm's way. And I think 
what folks don't always think about, and it's understandable if you don't live a military life, is that the entire family serves and deserves our respect. Uh, for every soldier who's off in a combat zone, there is a spouse or loved one who's keeping homework checked and cars tuned up and bills paid. And while they're doing that, they jump a little bit every time the phone rings or there's a knock, an unexpected knock at the door. Um, and so they do it because they want to protect our ideals, our constitution. It's the, it's the most honorable work that an American can, can contribute, I believe. And so I, I hope that through the movie, we, we don't speak for any other military family but our, but our own, but I hope that the universal themes of service and sacrifice and what a real pre- patriot and hero is comes through. Uh, you said that you were the only national reporter mm-hmm. to get that awful knock on the door. Yes, at that time. Mm-hmm. At that time. What was it like working in a newsroom, covering the war that your fiance was fighting in? Hmm. We had a an editor that sat pretty close to me, keeping a tally of all the soldiers who died. Uh, and she she would yell out, I have more dead guys when a new number came in and I would flinch every time. And I, I, I'm not a shy person, but I didn't have the heart to get up and tell her or ask her to please stop doing that because I, I would have lost it. So I just kept enduring it. Um, we had a television screen on my desk because I was in charge of deploying... Uh, interesting choice of words, but um, our reporters on breaking news stories, and there'd be breaking news updates from CNN or other places, MSNBC, um, showing the latest explosions from Iraq. And I was pregnant at the time, and um, my colleagues would notice, and they'd come and either turn the TV away from me or turn it off. So it wasn't easy, but my colleagues at the New York Times helped get me through it. There were always teddy bears on my desk. People would bring tea for me, um, come by with a kind word, leave a card. And they really helped me. So on some level, it was just numbers. Yeah. Yeah. But for every number, I knew there was a name like Charles behind it. And I made it my mission to uh, personalize it. So one of the things I did is I created a beat called The War at Home and assigned reporters to write about the family members at home and what they were dealing with while their loved one was deployed. How about the politics of the war? I stayed away from that completely. And the reason, I mean, I had very strong feelings about it, of course, but I thought that was irrelevant. I'm not a military expert, so that's one. But I also didn't want the the book to be used uh, by either side. And I thought, the message here is not about the politics, it's about the people behind these uniforms. Um, we were talking earlier about your collaboration with Denzel Washington, your partnership with mm-hmm. him, the friendship that developed between the two of you, um, and how rare it is, frankly, for yes. authors to have really much say at all in their book once it's been optioned, mm-hmm. especially to somebody as uh, um, well-known and respected as Denzel Washington. How was it as a journalist to adapt to this aspect of creative license, to see things that were factual in your book be adapted for a a general audience? It was actually easier than I expected because Denzel and Virgil Williams, our screenwriter, had me so involved at every step of the process. I ran the Pulitzer Prizes for a while and 
the first year uh, I was announcing the winners, we made some news. And so, of course, that Pulitzer ceremony was when it was awarded to Kendrick Lamar, the rapper. Yes. And the news mm-hmm. was about? Well, two things. People obviously wanted to discuss that. And there was a lot of interest in the fact that for the first time in a century, a woman and a person of color was announcing the winners of the Pulitzer Prizes and running the Pulitzer Prize organization. And I was di- I was humbled by that. So while you were answering questions about this historic <laughs> moment for the Pulitzers, you're also writing the script. Yes. For the movie, A Journal with Jordan. Virgil was writing. I was guiding him. (laughs) (laughs) I announced the winners. And then the entire next day, I had interviews back to back. And in between the interviews about the Pulitzers, what people didn't see is Virgil and I were sitting there going through every page, page by page of the script. And during the difficult moments, we would cry. I would, you know, wipe off my eyes and keep going. That's, that's, That's what you do. I mean, this is a mission. Yes. Was Denzel Washington sensitive to your feedback? Oh my gosh, 100%. Um, very, very much so. I, I'd i say in the last two months before we started shooting, I probably talked to him a hundred times, literally. Um, he was sensitive to everything. Uh, and because of that, the movie really is incredibly accurate, very real to life uh, in terms of both the portrayal of us and the book as I wrote it. And so you can't ask for anything better than that when you turn your story over to someone and hope they do justice to it. Um, One of the pieces of it that's not accurate is that it portrays Charles as being buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Yes. And you write in your book that this is one of the things that you and Charles actually spoke about mm-hmm. before he left. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that he would like to be buried in Arlington. You mm-hmm. write in your book that this is one of the things that haunted you. Yes. Well, when the decision was made I to bury him in Ohio, I agreed completely because his mother, as you can imagine, was completely broken. This was her baby. And she needed to be able to visit him on the weekends. And I... I completely agreed with that and deferred to her. I still would like him moved to Arlington, and at some point I think we will, but I understood it at the time. He deserves to to, to lay among presidents and generals and service members. Uh, that would make him proud, and it's where his son wants him to be. So it still may become true. Yes. The movie just had its premiere at Lincoln Center. Yes. Um, all the stars were there. <laughs> Denzel, Michael B. Jordan, Shantae Adams, all on the red carpet with you and your family. Um, it will be released widely on Christmas Day. How has your son responded to the story and the book? He is incredibly proud. He's so um, humble and reserved and pensive about it. He's He's an old soul. And so It surprises people to know that up until about two weeks ago, when he could no longer contain it, he hadn't told a single person in his school, not his teachers, anybody, that he knew Michael B. Jordan, that Denzel is his Uncle D, as he calls him. He he didn't tell him about the movie at all. And I said, Jordan, why, why did you make that decision? And he said, well, Mom, first of all, I didn't want to feel like I was bragging. And he said, and I wanted to make sure... The people who are friends were my real friends. 
Uh, now he shared it with World. In fact, yesterday, his school, we screened it at the Sony screening room for the entire 10th grade class. And they just enveloped in him, him in love and support and um, gave him hugs. And, and he was really happy about that. It was my way of trying to help him ease into this public profile that he now has. But he's very, very proud. Uh, the funny thing is, Denzel flew to New York to screen it for us privately first. And there are some difficult moments. And so I would tap Jordan on the shoulder and say, let me let you know what's coming up. And he said, Mom, all I want to know is when the love scenes are coming up so I can close my eyes and ears. Because that's gross. Because <laughs> that's a 15-year-old boy. Nobody wants to think about their parents <laughs> being romantic. <laughs> he just told the story about how Jordan didn't tell any of his friends until two weeks ago mm -hmm. that this movie was coming out that has his name in the title <laughs> and is about the story of his provenance. Um, it strikes me that that's very much channeling the values of his father. 100%. Yes. In fact, even more so, if I might say, the first day we went to set, uh, I said, Jordan, I'll let the school know that you won't be attending classes today. And he said, no, mom, I don't want to miss algebra. And I said, Jordan, you nerd. <laughs> Sounds like you, the journal worked. Yes, yes. And so he refused to miss school. So he only came for his lunch hour. The journal is still working. How much to heart does he take those bits of wisdom that Charles wrote down? It's The journal itself is now a family heirloom. The words are very personal. And I tell him all the time, you're having uh, an active conversation with your father, an ongoing conversation with him that many boys and girls whose parents are living don't have. And there are times Jordan will ask me something and I'll say, go see what your father had to say about that. And he'll pull the journal out and read it. The journal will mean different things to him at different points in his life. You know, he has favorite entries now at 15, and that'll be different when he's a father or on his wedding day, or when he's facing something difficult in life. Uh, so it's an ongoing conversation with his dad, and he cherishes it. Um, faith is a powerful theme mm -hmm. in the book, in the movie, uh, in Charles's life. Talk about the power that faith carried in Charles's life and in your life. Charles was a very deeply religious Christian man. In a traditional sense. Yes, he was a he, traditional Christian. Mm -hmm. He was the only man I ever dated that I felt comfortable praying with. And we would pray together. We prayed that we would be able to have Jordan, for example. Um, my faith was less conventional. And I always assumed, because I'd never had, I'd never lost anyone in my life, that I'd be angry with God if I lost someone. And the exact opposite happened. I felt the power of his divine embrace around me and it helped get me through it in very palpable ways. I said to Charles, sort of jokingly, look, if you die on me over there and you want to give me a sign that you're still here, it's got to be palpable because I'm a journalist. I don't deal in wishy-washy. And I remember coming home one day, we hadn't even buried him yet, three days after he died, the military picked me up to take me to sign all these documents and some briefings. And Jordan was six months old. And I remember thinking, my gosh, my baby is suddenly very heavy. And I'm walking back in the front door and I said, Charles, please, I can't do this. Please give me a sign that you're still here. And that was during the time when we all had landlines and answering machines. And I turned on the answering machine and there was a man on the line named Sergeant Wesley. 
and he sounded very hurt. And he said, Dana, Miss Kennedy, I'm calling you from Iraq. You don't know me. And he said, but Charles gave me your phone number and he made me promise that if anything ever happened to him, I would call you and tell you he loves you and you're going to be all right. I couldn't have, I couldn't have made that up. I couldn't have, I couldn't have envisioned that happening uh, without God. And so in moments when I needed it, God has shown his, his love of us and his presence. And Jordan prays every night. You remember, we started this with me saying, I didn't know how I was going to get off the floor. Look at where we are now. I couldn't have done that on my own. A Journal for Jordan is a really patriotic movie. Yes. In a time of pretty intense polarization in this country. Um, do you think that's an important message to convey right now? I really do. Why? First of all, I wish people could walk in my shoes for one day and see um, the hugs I'm getting from people all over the country. They, I don't care. They don't care if they're black, white, whatever, rich, poor. Uh, people are connecting with the story. And it reminds me that we're all Americans and we're in this together. Charles didn't fight for black people. He didn't fight for Asian people. He fought for all of us, for our constitution and our ideals. We need to, we need to remind each other of that. And um, it, it, figuratively embrace each other. And I think that it's one of the reasons that this movie is so important during the holidays. I hope people will go to it with the people they love, sit there and be reminded of the power of love. Love, love lives on. It doesn't die. And come out of the theater and hug those people they love even tighter. There are sad parts of the movie for sure, but it's also really funny. There's some funny moments. There's some uplifting moments. But I think the big takeaway is what an honor it is to be an American and to see service members giving everything they have for us, but also doing it so that we, the family members, can continue to love each other. Um, that's a big part of the reason I did this, and it's certainly the reason that Charles fought so hard. You're the first in your family to graduate from college, mm -hmm. and you earned a degree in journalism from the University of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. What drew you to journalism? My two favorite things are writing and asking why. And so when you combine those things, journalism was just obvious for me. But I also, going back to your question about my faith, believe deeply. I started writing when I was 12 years old. I was called to this. And when I got my first job out of college and all the way through when I was working at the New York Times, I used to put my hands on the computer keyboard and pray and say, God, you gave me this amazing talent. Please let me use it for your good. And I have written articles that were regarded as important over time. But I said, this isn't it. This isn't it. It was the book and it was the movie. Um, I feel is in service to God. Denzel feels that way. We've talked about this a lot. And that's how I want to spend the rest of my life is doing God's work. Does Denzel feel it was in oh, service to God? Oh, my gosh. He, every time he says what I'm about to say, I cry. He said this is the most important thing he's done in his entire career and that he was called to this. Everything he has done in movie making was to lead to this moment. And he believes that he was called by God to do this. Do you talk about your faith? Oh, we talk about it all the time. We've prayed together. We've laughed together. We've cried together. The, the conversation that we have the most is about 
um, our faith, other than talking about Jordan, and wanting to do God's will with this movie. What's God's will? To put messages of hope uh, out there through this, but also not to predict what people are going to take away from it. You know, to put a movie out there that that will speak for itself, and I think it'll have different meaning for for different people. I saw it in, in with my book, for example, and I think we'll we'll be able to do this in a much bigger way with the movie. I would speak all over the country and have these unbelievable experiences. For example, I remember being at a, at a college campus and there are 1,500 students in line. I'm signing their book and someone comes up to me, a beautiful little blonde girl shaking. And she, I'm signing and she says, um, thank you so much. This book is helping me get through my own tragedy. And I said, what's going on? And she said, I was raped last semester. Hmm. And I was the first person she was telling. And obviously, I stopped the line. We stepped aside, got her some help. I had had experiences like that all over the country. Mm. And let me tell you one story about the power of God. I was in D.C. speaking after the book came out to 450 grieving military families. This is a true story. As God is my witness. And I prayed going in. And I said, God, please help me to reach somebody who needs to be, needs a word, you know, from you. This lady, my sister met her first and said, you got to go into a room with this family. And they come in and this young lady says to me, "Um, my brother died. And she says, and I I don't feel him around me. She didn't know I was going to be there. I didn't know she was going to be there. And she said, I said, okay, I'll come to one more thing. Just show me, show me you're here. He died in the Humvee with Charles. How'd you figure that out? Because she was watching uh, a clip that they did when I was on the Oprah show. And it mentioned, and then I mentioned the soldiers who died with him by name, and that was her brother. And so, faith has been a theme throughout this. It, it truly has. So, you believe God brought you together? Oh, my goodness. I prayed coming in saying, please help me to reach someone. And she said to her brother, I feel lost without you. I don't feel you. Show me you're here. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, I want to get to your career as a journalist. Okay. Um, you worked at the New York Times for more than 20 years um, as a reporter and later in senior management. And so many sources are telling us now that trust in mainstream journalism and media continues to erode. Um, social media has provided echo chambers that amplify false stories. What can be done to restore trust in journalism? I think a big part of the problem is there's a, there's confusion between legitimate journalism and everything else. And anyone now can call themselves a journalist and go online and and, and write. That doesn't make you an, a, a journalist. So what's legitimate journalism? Uh, I think people who are trained in the art of storytelling, but also adhere to the rules of journalism about uh, no ambiguity in sourcing, um, you know, who really take to heart our values as journalists and don't embellish in any way. I think what we need to do is just continue legitimate press to do what we do and run in our own lane. Uh, We need to be as transparent as we possibly can be with our sourcing, with our methods. And I think the uh, trust in journalism ebbs and flows. Certainly having a four-year campaign by the previous administration, you know, chipping away 
at um, legitimate journalism and calling it fake news didn't help. But the New York Times has been here for 200 years or something like that. It'll, it'll continue to endure. There have been other times in history where faith in the press um, has waned. And I think we just keep going. I mean, it really is all you can do. The Times series that you worked on, which won the Pulitzer Prize, mm-hmm. um, entitled How Race is Lived in America, um, is about discrimination and racism in America. And, and Charles writes about discrimination um, that he faces and then how he dealt with that. Um, he challenged your son, Jordan, to mm-hmm. go beyond race, mm-hmm. beyond religion, beyond class. He writes, quote, You never know what hidden talents a person might have to share with you. Life would be boring if we were all the same. Appreciate people for who they are and learn from their differences. So from your perspective, what changes for better or for worse do you see about how we live race in America? I see my son and his friends and it gives me hope. Every generation we get better at this. And I really believe it's two step forward, one step back. But if you have two steps and one back, you're you're moving forward. There are going to be hard moments. I feel like we're all in a long-term relationship in this country. And any long-term relationship has pressure points and has painful moments. We have to keep going. But when you look at the rainbow that that is my son and his generation and how hopeful they are and how open they are, uh, we're making progress. I mean, a generation ago, I wouldn't have been publisher of Simon & Schuster. There's a time that if I was in the New York Times newsroom, it would have been to empty the trash can. So we're getting there. It's just slow. And we have these pressure pressure points, but we'll be okay. Well, you know, in 2017, you left the New York Times. Um, you, pay, you became the administrator of the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. You're the first woman and mm-hmm. also the first person of color mm-hmm. to to have that job. And then in July of 2020, you were asked to become a publisher of Simon & Schuster, making you the most powerful woman of color in publishing. Yes. Um, but, but what struck me is that you said when you got the job, you acknowledged that the CEO of Simon & Schuster had pursued you years earlier. Yes. And while giving Simon & Schuster a lot of credit for offering you the job two years earlier before this current push um, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you're quoted as saying, I wouldn't be taking this job if I thought he just wanted a black publisher. That's right. Well, I appreciate you um, putting that in the right context because... Tucker Carlson wrote about me in his book, and he said, he quoted me saying just the opposite of what I said. He said that I acknowledged that I was uh, hired, uh, I was a diversity hire, hired in a a time of, quote, quote, racial reckoning. What I said was to the New York Times that in an era of racial reckoning, Simon & Schuster should get credit for the fact that my CEO, John Carp, an amazing man, started talking to me two years previous. That's what I said. And no, I, I, would, I don't want to be the black anything. I'm not the black publisher. I'm the publisher. Um, the fact that I'm an African-American woman, I take great pride in that. And it does inform uh, some of my decision-making. And it, it, for example, I want to diversify the authors we bring in and the stories we tell. Of course I do. But when I wake up every morning and decide what I want to put my clout behind, where I should, where we should be um, um, spending our time, energy, and money. 
I'm approaching that as a businesswoman. You write about how you came to the Times. And I recall you referencing the need you felt at that time in your career to really prove yourself. And, and did race play into that? Oh, 100%. There weren't very many Black people at the New York Times. I I'm, I'm not sure if there are now. There, there's certainly more than when I was there. And I felt like I could not screw up. If I screwed up, and I think this, I actually think this is a weight that a lot of people of color feel uh, when they are one of, they're either the only one or one of a few in any industry. You know, I felt as though if I screwed up, maybe that door would close for people behind me. And there was a lot of pressure in that, but I welcomed it because I was in the door. And as I've said to young women, you know, who think about things like glass ceiling, well, glass breaks, shatter it. But in order to do that, you have to excel and you have to be all about excellence. You have to learn your craft and execute day in and day out, year after year. And I tried to do that. Doesn't mean that I didn't make mistakes or don't make mistakes now. I do. But um, excellence trumps everything, really. If you are all about the work and you bring passion and, and, and you work hard, um, you'll excel. Um, you said at Fortune's Most Powerful Women's Summit in October, quote, I'm someone who believes we have to understand the country and the world we're living in. The books I try to acquire do that. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about the present moment and the kind of books we need to be reading? I think we need to read everything. And it's not about the moment. It's just if you, you know, we're so privileged in America that we get to pick our leaders every few years we guide our destiny. And so we have to hear from people we agree with and people we don't. An echo chamber is one of the most dangerous things that we can tune into. I read, listen to all kinds of news because I want to be able to speak to the people who disagree with me. I want to understand where they're coming from. You know, why are you thinking that way? And if I'm only reading and listening to the thoughts and words and um, philosophies of people who agree with me, I'm not going to have my mind open and expand to what the possibilities are, but I'm also not going to understand where a good segment of our country is coming from. Um, as a publisher, you decide which voices to amplify and which voices not to amplify. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, publishers are increasingly facing pressure uh, to drop authors like Woody Allen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. How do you think about this, this set of pressures that publishers are feeling to cancel certain writers? I take every decision I make, whether it's that or who to hire uh, or when to make a big acquisition, one at a time. And I always ask myself in making any decision, what am I motivated by? Am I motivated by ego pain? Do I understand everything I need to to make this decision? And if I can answer those questions, I'm incredibly comfortable making a big decision. So I really think that in terms of canceling a book, for example, that's a last resort. And you have to have very strong reasons for wanting to do that. I also know that as a leader, I'm not going to satisfy everybody, and I'm not particularly concerned about that. As long as I'm motivated by the right factors, I'm comfortable with any decision I make, even those that I know are going to draw criticism. Well, one that drew criticism was the acquisition of Vice President Mike Pence's book. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, applaud your decision to Thank stand you. by that acquisition, um, despite 
many, many voices within your company and outside of your company wanting it to be canceled. Talk about, and you've just said this, why is it important to hear, again, from a variety of voices, including conservative voices? Mm -hmm. Because we're one America. We're not a red America or a white America. I mean, we are in the, uh, you know, every four years or every two years in the midterms. But we are, we are literally called the United States. And if we don't live up to that, then we might as well change our name. That's it. It's as simple as that. We have to understand each other. We are in this together, like it or not. Well, it's Christmas season. Yes. Um, it's a time of blessings, mm -hmm. um, which is a word you apply to Charles. <laughs> um, and to Jordan and to this entire experience, despite all the grief. Um, what is Dana Kennedy's Christmas blessing this year? Oh, gosh, it's the same every year. Just, just that my son is healthy and happy. I, when I hear that boy either giggle or snore, it's all I need in the world. Nothing else. Thank you for joining me on Firing Line. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.